Good morning, church. Great to see you all this morning. Welcome to Union Chapel and welcome to the story. We're so excited. If you're joining us online today, and I know many of you are, we're so glad you've tuned in. I hope you have a copy of the story with you. That'll be helpful to you. And if you brought your copy, that'll be good as well. Thank you so much for that. You should have read ahead to chapter one. So if you have chapter one read, you are prepared and we will do that uh, each of the next weeks. And so this next week, you'll want to read chapter two. We're very excited about this, uh, this opportunity to do something that is the greatest story ever told, and we're very excited about it. Now, you should know that my uh, point of view as we begin this, this wonderful journey is to assume that no one has ever heard any of the stories of the Bible. Uh, so I'm trying to avoid saying, you remember when or you'll recall this particular event I just, my assumption, if I use those phrases, it'll be by accident. My assumption is that no one knows anything about the Bible, so that we'll just lay some foundations and the basics. So let me just begin with this one. There are five movements in the Bible, not four, not six. There are five. They are these. There is, there, there is paradise at the beginning. It's called the Garden of Eden, early creation, which we'll cover today. The second part of the story is the nation of Israel, the story of Abraham, the father of the faith, and his descendants, the priests, the prophets, the kings, the judges, the wisdom literature, the Old Testament, the law, the Old Testament, the story of Israel. And then thirdly, the third part of this movement is the story of Jesus. You remember him. We have the four Gospels of the New Testament, and we will talk about Jesus for a while. And the next movement, the fourth movement, is the story of the church. This is the book of Acts, all of the apostolic epistles, and, and an understanding of life as a Christian in the world, the church. And then the last movement, we come full circle, back to paradise. Of course, this is the prophetic literature at the end of the Bible, in the Revelation, and it's also in reference to a place called heaven. It's not Eden anymore, but now the paradise is described as heaven, the eternal kingdom of God. So again, five movements. First is the paradise of Eden. Next is the story of Israel, the story of Jesus, the story of the church, and the story of eternal life. Back to paradise. And you can see it all comes full circle. And so if you, if you understand those five movements, have them clear in your mind, chronological order, you can understand where we're going. Johnny was in Sunday school class, and the teacher was talking about creation. He was very enthralled, especially the part where the teacher mentioned that God had removed a rib from Adam in order to create Eve. The following week, Johnny was playing, and his mother saw him kind of laying on the ground like he was ill, and she said, are you okay? He said, yeah, I said, I have a pain in my side. I think I'm having a wife. Try not to take that personally. <laughs> the very first sentence of the Bible is powerful, and I know many of you have it memorized, and I want us to read it together. We'll put it on the screen, and so let's read it out loud together. Ready? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yeah. So the first four words of the story were introduced to the main character of the story, and that's God himself. 
And we know that everything, according to this verse, in, in the heavens and on the earth, have their life, have their breath, have their existence, have their being from him. Now, I want to pause here just to let you know that Genesis chapters 1 and 2 are not necessarily intended to be a science book that uncovers the age of the earth or even the natural process that God used to pull it off. A, a lot of that remains a bit mysterious. Um, there, there are those who want to speculate about the nature of the process and how God actually did creation. But from my study and point of view, it's completely appropriate on one hand to hold to what you might describe as a young earth creationism. And there are people who hold this with great fervor and, and, and much insistence that this is what the Bible says and so this is what we should believe. And it's the point of view which means that God created the earth and the world, the universe, in six 24-hour days. And that would mean that our earth is rather young, but has the appearance of age. So if, if a young earth creationism is actually what God did with 24-hour 20, days and a six-day period, made the whole world, then God made the earth to look as if it's older than some thousands of years old, uh, and that's how he created it, which is possible, and that's, that's fine. We can illustrate it with uh, how we buy blue jeans. For example, back in my day when a teenager would buy a pair of denim jeans, it was a workout. These jeans had to be broken in. Can I get a witness? <laughs> These, this denim was heavy, and it was crisp. And I mean, the first time you pull them on, wow, you wonder if those are ever going to be useful. <laughs> Most teenage girls back in the day, my, my wife did this, uh, they would buy a pair of jeans and of course you got to work to get them on. I mean, they're just stiff as a board and so you're working to get them on and then they'd fill the bathtub with water and get in the bathtub and soak them completely and then wear them the rest of the day so as they dried and stretched, they would conform to the shape of, of the person wearing them. God bless them. Today, when you buy jeans, they're pre-washed, they're whitewashed, and they come with holes. <laughs> you don't have to wear them out. So this is a good illustration of, of the young earth creationism. That, that It's new, but it looks old when you think about the earth. Now, you could also, on the other hand, hold the view called theistic evolution, theistic implying God at work, and some kind of process, evolution, which suggests there's a gap of a long period of time between Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, which says the earth was formless and without void, and, the, and it was chaotic, and the Spirit of God was brooding over the surface of the deep. And then verse 3 says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. You know, boom. Big Bang would be an understatement for what probably happened. But we don't know the length of time between this brooding of the spirit over the darkness of the waters of the early earth and let there be light. So we just don't know. Uh, so we can imagine that the six days represent a longer period than 24 hours. And in my opinion, neither view 
undermines the purpose of the scripture, nor the authority of the scripture. God could have made Genesis chapters 1 and 2 clearly a description of a scientific method answering the question how he created the heavens and the earth, but it's just not intended to be that, Genesis 1 and 2. My main point is simply that we need to embrace that God is behind the creation. The story starts with God, and so the, the created order is not an accident. It's not a coincidence. It has not happened by chance. We need to conclude that God started with nothing and created all we can see and everything we can't see. And once you conclude that there's a creator God, frankly, he can do what he wants. Whether the process, a theistic evolutionary process, took billions of years for it to happen, or if he did it all in a nanosecond, makes no difference to me. Because the, the, God, that, the God that I worship and serve is capable of doing either or both. Are you okay with that? The point is that Genesis 1 and 2 has less to do with your view of creation and science and more to do with embracing a proper view of who God is himself. That's, that's the point I want to make. So now we move to the whole point of creation. Why? Why did God do all of this? Really important question, isn't it? Why are we here? What is going on? And it comes down, as we begin the story, to this magnificent garden, and we know approximately where it is, where it was. Uh, you can open your story to the inside cover, and you'll see an ancient map there. We'll put it on the screen for you. And if you, if you look on the map and find the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, and you can see that they, they flow south toward the Persian Gulf, and where the Tigris and Euphrates merge, just north of the Persian Gulf there, that is where we're fairly certain resided the Garden of Eden. You might want to, you can see we've drawn a little tree onto the map here. Maybe if you, if you have a pen or something, you can draw just a little tree there depicting the Garden of Eden. That is in modern-day Iraq, where the Tigris and Euphrates merge north of the, of the Persian Gulf. So that's an interesting thing to know, isn't it? Now, while you have your map open there, where you see the headwaters of the Euphrates north of there, just north and east of Nineveh, between the Tigris and Euphrates, that's where we believe Noah built the ark. That's why we drew a little boat there. I have a little tugboat that I drew on mine. Well, I tried to draw a depiction of the art. I'm not an artist. When I finished, oh, it's a tug. So probably not big enough. But you might want to put that on your map too. Point of reference, point of interest. And in this garden of Eden, God places his crowning achievement, which he describes as the apple of his eye. Now, what is that? That's you. That's you and me. That's us. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. Now, God created all of the universe. And we know, for example, uh, in the universe that we have been able to study, that we live in what we describe as a Milky Way galaxy. We have a, a star in our solar system called the sun. 
And that's, that sun, that star within the Milky Way galaxy is one of billions of stars. There are billions of stars like our sun inside of our home galaxy, the Milky Way. We also know out there in space, in the universe, there are at least 100 billion other galaxies. At some point, this begins to boggle the mind. Yeah, you can't get your mind around it. It's so huge. And so, and so we know the universe is magnificent. It's, it is enormous. And, and that we are just a little spot in that universe. By the way, uh, we have just recently in the United States launched another s- uh, satellite telescope, which is 100 times more powerful than the Hubble Space Telescope, and will be able to tell us all kinds of things we don't know about the universe. It'll be cool. Love that stuff. In, in, the, in the study of the universe, it just makes God more impressive to me. And so, and so we, have, we have this world in which we've lived. But God reports to us as huge and spectacular and almost incomprehensible as the universe is, he says the most important part of all creation are men and women. That he has created in order to establish himself in relationship. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the community of the Godhead, wants to be in intimate connection, close fellowship, in community with you and me. This is God's ultimate objective for creation. That's why he did it. That's why he made it, so that he can be in connection with us. So let me put this first statement on the screen. His vision is to come down and be with us in a beautiful garden. So the first pages of Bible, the Bible we see what matters most to God is his relationship with us. But God wants to know if Adam and Eve want to embrace the same vision. And so he gives Adam and Eve a very powerful capacity that nothing else in creation None of the other created order has the same capacity that human beings have, and that is freedom of will, the freedom of choice. This is the most powerful aspect of God's created order. There is no close second to this. The the capacity that God has given us as human beings to choose right from wrong is the greatest gift God has ever given us. It's an amazing capacity, remarkable opportunity. So God says to Adam and Eve in the garden, I'm going to give you a choice to either accept my vision and live in close harmony and communication, community with me, or you can choose otherwise. And in the middle of the garden, he places two trees. One is the tree of life. This bears fruit that when you partake of this fruit, it's the fountain of youth. You never die. You live forever. God's original intent and design for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden was to live there forever in communion with God and the whole human race that would be developed with them. The second tree in the garden was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now we have this choice and God sets before them the choice and he forbades them to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because he said, when you eat of that tree, You will discern right from wrong. You will have chosen a different course, a different vision than the one that I have set out. And you will have chosen to sin. And that sin will damage our relationship and lead to your death. The wages of sin is death. 
And we know the story. We know that they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that led to what we call the fall. Let me put this next statement on the screen. The first two people reject God's vision and are escorted from the garden. We know that God posted angels with flaming swords uh, around the garden, forbidding them to come back into the garden. And because God knew that if they stayed in the garden and partook of the tree of life, the fruit from that tree, that they would live forever in a state of rebellion and sinfulness toward God, which leads to misery and war and deprivation and dysfunction of every kind. And God compassionately and mercifully drove them out of the garden, allowing human beings the consequence of their own sin, which is death, which is far better than to live in a state of sinful condition forever. It's a very important point. Next statement, I'll put it on the screen. Their decision then introduces sin into the human race and keeps us from community with God. The Bible tells us that the moment Adam and Eve took the forbidden fruit, and by the way, uh, scholars and psychologists actually got together a few years ago to try to determine what the forbidden fruit actually was. And we've seen it depicted in art and throughout history as an apple. Eve partook of the apple, gave some to Adam, and they fall from, fell from grace. Uh, so we imagined it as an apple, but the psychologists and theologians concluded that a woman would not surrender everything for an apple. They now have concluded more accurately that the forbidden fruit was chocolate. <laughs> now it makes more sense, doesn't it? Makes a lot more sense. So when they bit into the fruit, they declared their decision. And at that point, something changed in their nature. Sin began to run through their bloodstream. They now have two choices, signified by the name of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Before Adam and Eve faced all of their decisions with only one option in mind. But now, and for us as well, there are two options. We can choose what is right, moral, good, for the sake of ourselves and others, or we can choose the other option, which is immoral. And it's about getting, for me, what I want at the expense of others, which, by the way, is a pretty good definition of sin. And Adam and Eve are now faced with an internal conflict, which we all understand and appreciate it. And we get the first signal. We get the first signal of this internal condition of separation from God and brokenness. When Adam and Eve see each other, the day after they sin, and before then they've been naked and perfectly happy with each other in the garden. But now they see each other and they're afraid, they're ashamed, they're vulnerable. It's very interesting, isn't it? Before they saw themselves with only good thoughts, now they see each other with evil thoughts. And we identify with that, don't we? They covered themselves to protect themselves from the other person and from God. And we have the same defensive mode that we activate and have ever since. The more a person in a situation like this where they're speaking to a group of folks, and the more we talk about our shame and our vulnerability and our tendency to hide from God and from others in all kinds of ways, physically, emotionally, relationally, 
the more it, it, it dawns on us and the more we realize that we all suffer from the consequences of this original sin. The psalmist wrote it this way. It's in Psalm 51, verse 5. He said, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. This is a very hard concept to get your mind around. That all of us have inherited from our parents and their parents before them and their parents before them the tendency towards sin. It runs in our veins. I inherited from my dad uh, a weakness in our lower back. My dad, you know, every once in a while his back would go out, had to have surgery. He suffered with a lower back problem his whole life. I, I suffer with a lower back problem. Our sons suffer, suffer from a lower back problem. And we all suffer from the sin problem. We inherited it from our father, Adam, and our mother, Eve. It's part of the condition of the world. So if you're a human being in this room today, you're a descendant of Adam, which means from the womb of your mother, you were conceived with a sinful nature. And that's hard to comprehend. It's easy to be in denial about. People have tried to push the thought of it away for centuries but all you have to do is experience the human condition, observe the human condition, and realize that we all suffer from the same tendency to sin. Now, here's what we see over and over again in the story. When humanity is left alone from God, the expressions of evil only get worse and worse. This, this happens from the garden after sin enters the world, and it's continued to happen ever since. This is precisely what happens in the unfolding of the first pages of the Bible. We have from Cain killing his own brother to the time of the flood, we see that sin escalates to the point of the despicable. One occasion that's not found in the story, but it is in the Bible, it's in Genesis chapter 6, records an act that is, that is uh, where some believe that evil male angels, we might even call, call them demonic spirits, are taking human women and producing an offspring, a combination of angelic beings, dark, dark spirits, copulating with human women and producing a race of people, offspring, that the Bible calls Nephilim. It's hard to wrap our minds around this, but what we know is that it's a deplorable act against the design and pattern of God, best intention and design of God. This is crossing over a boundary. Spirits should not interact sexually with human beings. This is evil. This is corrupt. It's despicable. It's deplorable. Um, we, let me give you a modern day example. It's like society saying it's okay for boys to go into a girl's restroom. It's the same thing where something so outside of the design, purpose, and pattern of God is being suggested by people who don't even think it's wrong. Whenever society gets to that place where boundaries are being crossed, being crossed without any notion of what God thinks about it, we don't care what God thinks about it. We're, we're not interested in what God originally designed and intended for these kinds of relationships. We don't care where the boundaries are. We'll just cross them indiscriminately, back and forth, 
with impunity. Any time in history, beginning in the early days of man, when people turn their back on God and choose to cross the boundaries without a conscience, God has to intervene. And that's exactly what he does in this case. So the top of page eight from your story or Genesis chapter six, verses five and six, look on the screen with me at these verses. And the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Now, this is a horrible declaration, isn't it? I mean, to hear God say this, that he regretted making people. But the story doesn't end here. And we're going to discover that God's going to make an attempt to gain us back, to recapture us and the community that he wants with us. So even in the state of this wickedness, God comes up with an idea. And that's where we arrive at the flood, this worldwide flood. I'll put this statement on the screen. At this moment, God gives a promise and launches a plan to get us back. Now on page eight of the story, Genesis chapter six, verses seven and eight, put these words on the screen, these verses. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth, the human race I have created. And with them, the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now this plan makes perfect sense. Because what God has in mind is Adam's race isn't working out, only leads to corruption. Here's Noah. He's the best guy that God can find at the time, the most righteous man left on the earth at this time. He has a wife. He has three sons. They have wives of their own. And so God decides he's going to do a, a do-over. He's going to wipe out everyone because of evil and its significance in the world. And he's going to start over with the best guy he can find, a guy named Noah. That's his plan. And so maybe the race that emanates out of Noah and his family will be better than the one we started with with Adam. And so we start over with this best guy and we'll see, see if, it, if it goes. So God speaks to Noah and says, I want you to build a big boat, really big, gives him the dimensions. It's huge three levels on this boat, uh, no windows, um, no rudder, no propulsion, just a floater. And Noah and his son start building the ark. It takes them over a hundred years, a hundred years, you know, pitch on the inside, pitch on the outside. And so Noah bears up under the scrutiny, the, the social pressure, uh, you can imagine how, how under a pressure and social attack he would have been. 100 years plus building the ark. And Noah, his wife, his three sons, their wives, they go into the ark, the animals, two by two. God shuts the door. The flood wipes out everything alive on the earth. Everything that walks on the earth or flies in the air is killed. Noah is on this boat with his family and these animals for approximately 370 days. They step out and they start to rebuild. Not from the seed of Adam, but from the seed of Noah. And they're going to see if this fixes the problem and leads them back 
to God. Now, we ask the question, did this plan, plan A, work? And the answer is it didn't work. Here was the first indication. Noah plants a, a vineyard shortly after he gets off the ark, and with the grapes that he raises, he makes some wine, and, and one night he gets drunk. And who could blame him? Guy spent over 100 years building a boat that no one thought he would have to use. And then the next 370 days, he's with his cranky wife during the day or during the night, and he's doing nothing but shoveling during the day. You would get drunk too. Noah in his drunken stupor falls in his tent and he is naked and asleep. And one of his sons named Ham come in and see his father naked. This is disgraceful. And so he has a choice, good or evil. He can be good and take a cloth and cover his naked father. Or this is what he did. He went out and told his brothers and, da- and, 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 and sisters-in-law, hey, come and check out dad. You know, he's laying naked in a tent. And they, they go in, but they, they have more respect and they walk into the tent backwards. So they're not going to look at Noah in his naked state. And they cover up his nakedness. But it's too late. Because now it may seem like a small thing, but God has a glimpse. And he realizes they went on the boat with sin in their veins. And they got off the boat with sin in their veins. And it's not going to get any better. And so clearly the sin nature is still resonant within all of humanity. So plan A didn't work. And as a matter of fact, God says, and I'll paraphrase, this plan didn't work, so I'm never going to do this flood thing again and makes this covenant promise with Noah, I will never flood the earth to judge it again. And to demonstrate my covenant, uh, he puts, puts the rainbow in the sky. And that's a reminder to all of us that that kind of judgment will never come again. But this promise was made because plan A didn't work. And then that leads us to the next stage of the human condition that we find in this first movement of the story, which is the Tower of Babel. Just like sin escalated after Adam, so it happens again after Noah. And after time, after the flood, where humanity is left alone and tends in in aloneness to drift away from God, or a respect for God and God's ways and God's plans and God's parameters for life. It happens again. And people now on the earth all speak the same language. These are the descendants of Noah and his family, and they all get together. And this time they gather in one location and they decide to build a tower to the heavens for the purpose of building a name for themselves. This is what they, they say. It's in the text to build a name for themselves totally apart from any allegiance or dependence on God. Now, remember what happens throughout history. Anytime people are left unrestrained without respect or fear of God and his best plan and purposes for their lives, the corruption and the sin become so deplorable that God has to intervene. And that's what God has to do in this case, because these people, these post-Diluvian humans on the earth, we don't need God. We'll build a tower up to the heavens. We'll be able to climb up there, and we can, we can be as important as God is. And God sees them. And this is 
what God actually admits about them. This is in Genesis eleven six. This is an interesting point. He said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, build this tower, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. God acknowledges, and we can learn from this, what human potential is all about. God says, listen, if you've got a bunch of people with one mind and one purpose, all dedicated to doing the same thing, even if they're rejecting me as the purpose of what they're doing, nothing shall be impossible for them. That's a very, very powerful principle, the human potential principle. Overlay it now on us, the people of God, the people of faith, the people of the church. It's also true that anything the people of God set out to do with one mind, one heart, one purpose, for Jesus' sake, nothing shall be impossible for us. Amen. That's where the amen goes in the sermon. Nothing is impossible for us if we put our mind and our heart and our purpose for Jesus' sake in focus. We can accomplish anything that we set our heart to do to honor Jesus Christ because we have that kind of potential that God has given us. Amazing. So God steps in. He graciously confuses their language to weaken their ability to work together. And so he saved them from themselves. You say, why is that so important? We ought to thank God. Thank God that he confused the language of the people at Babel. Because if he had not done so, they would have gone on and shut out all of humanity for all time from any kind of connection with God. And that's a horrible thing. So let's come then to the conclusion of this first movement. So God says plan A didn't work. Time for plan B. What will it take to get back into the garden with God? What will it take to reclaim intimacy and community and relationship with God? What will God do next? Do you recall a time with Adam and Eve? If you look on the bottom of page six or Genesis 3.21, one of the first things God does after Adam and Eve have found themselves ashamed and afraid of the, in their nakedness, they cover themselves with fig leaves, you remember. The first thing God does for them, this is so important, this is a clue now to where, where the story will unfold. He removes their fig leaves and covers them with animal skins. Now, he's not just upgrading the wardrobe. This is a very important moment. He is signaling to us that the solution to getting you back and covering your sin is going to require greater sacrifice. It's going to require the shedding of blood. The animals whose skins God used to cover Adam and Eve in the garden had to be sacrificed. Their blood had to be shed. And it's an insight, it's a window, it's a clue into what God will have to do in order to reclaim us and his community with us. Which leads us to this last sentence, so I'll put it on the screen. The rest of the Bible is God's story of how he kept that promise and made it possible for us to enter a loving relationship with him. So the story is just beginning. Plan B, which is in reality has always been God's plan, 
and it's going to work. So if you stick around as the unfolding story happens, chapter after chapter, we're all going to see the extent to which God went, the extreme sacrifice, the extreme willingness, the extreme motivation of love that compelled God to, to do what he did in order to cover us and our sin and restore our relationship with him. So next week, read chapter two, and we will continue this story. Let's pause and pray just for a moment. I want you to just think with me, just listen. Listen with me for a moment. Let's rehearse as we, as we pray and contemplate what we've heard. God banished Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. He set angels to guard it in order to keep them from the tree of life, which would sustain life forever. Without access to this tree, they would eventually die. We think God is being crueler, mean, by letting us die, but it's actually an act of God's grace to keep us from being able to sustain our life forever in a state of sin, hatred, violence, misery. Man's choice resulted in separation from God, and it broke his heart. The rest of the story, the entire Bible, tells us of the relentless pursuit of God and the extent to which he will go in order to get us back. The rest of the story is the unfolding of God's loving pursuit of the apple of his eye, human beings, you and me, in order to restore us to loving community with him. After Adam and Eve sinned and became aware of their nakedness, they made fig leaves to clothe and cover their nakedness. God took away the fig leaves and covered Adam and Eve with the skins of animals. We see the clue. We begin to understand. For God to restore the vision that human beings are his supreme passion will require a supreme sacrifice, the shedding of blood. Lord, open our minds and hearts to your word because we know your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so enlighten us. May your truth liberate. Drive aside all confusion and darkness, unbelief. And may your truth light our way and set us free. Thank you for your grace to meet each one of us at the point of our, of our need the point of our journey, point of our story. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Would you stand with us?